Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 262, being recorded on Thursday, April 29th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason, it is late April, and you know what that means. Nope, not pollen season, not finally warming up in Chicago. It is earning season. I thought it was the week before Star Wars Day. Oh, yeah, that's coming up. A lot, lot of exciting May 4th uh, things going on. Uh, but that's not the focus of today's, shows, today's show. Uh, this earnings season, it lined up really uh, nicely for podcasters. So we appreciate all the big companies um, you know, working with us on this. So the sequence that was kind of interesting is we had Google first on the 28th and then eBay um, that same day, and then Amazon, and then, uh, I'm sorry, Shopify. So it went Google, Shopify, eBay, Amazon. (laughs) And Amazon was today. So we have kind of four of the key companies that we like to talk about all releasing. So it gives us a good chance to kind of see where we triangulated on Q1. Um, The other one that announced in there is Facebook, and we have a couple tidbits from that one. Uh, In fact, I'll kick it over to you to start there. Yeah, so Scott, uh, one of the interesting things in Facebook's announcement is they referenced um, the the likely impact that the that Apple's changes to mobile app tracking, the IDFA, would have on their go forward advertising revenue. And uh, as a reminder, we we did a deep dive into changes in in privacy from mobile cookies and or, or from mobile tracking and from from third party cookies in episode 257 which was a very popular episode um but one of the things we talked about is apple's making it harder to track mobile app um behaviors and the the company most impacted that by that is facebook because facebook sells a lot of ads to mobile app publishers to help them get installs for their mobile apps and they'll now have a lot more difficult time doing attribution for those ads and being able to state when those ads trigger an actual install. So in the earnings, uh, Facebook had pretty good earnings and in their guidance, they said they still expected the, that ad revenue to grow, but they did uh, acknowledge that the changes to IDFA would be a headwind um, that likely would slow down the rate of grow, uh, of advertising um, related to these mobile apps. And this this change that Apple was doing actually took effect in the the uh, iOS 14.5, which uh, released this Monday, uh, which I think was three days ago, April 26th. Um, and uh, a, a related side note that's that's interesting to me about Apple is. Apple is super good at getting all their users to update their operating system. So it's been like three days and a, a huge per, a huge majority of Apple's users are already on that new operating system. So whatever effect it's going to have on advertising, uh, Facebook is starting to see it. We probably won't get any data about what it was for at least a month. But, but Facebook is undoubtedly already feeling it. Whereas we're, you know, Google to make a similar change with, with um, uh, Android it would take much longer to take effect because uh, their their operating systems tend to get deployed much more slowly. Yeah, yeah. It's a as a app developer, the Android operating system is a huge uh, uh, bear to to support everything. People will call up and say, "I'm still on." I forget what C is. I'm still on KitKat and Caterpillar, and your thing doesn't work. Like that's thirty years old, dude. Get upgrade your upgrade your operating system. Exactly. But, so, yeah. So speaking of Google, uh, did you follow their earnings at all? Yes. And uh, uh, 
just briefly, that episode 257, I've had a lot of people say that uh, it was the first time they understood cookies, IDFA, and the cookie future. So um, kudos to you for explaining it in a way that people uh, can understand. I like to take 80% of the credit because I kind of interviewed you on that one. And I like to say I answered, I asked all the right questions. And that's, that's kind of what led it to be such a good episode. I feel like you are the Terry Gross of cookies. Fresh air. Okay, let's talk about Google results. Um, so we normally don't cover Google results here, but it was pretty interesting because as I was scanning through some of the analyst reports, I kept seeing a theme. And the theme is that Google's uh, search volume surprised everybody. It uh, it was up 30% year over year on what they call core sort search, which is people going directly to google.com, not distributed through like the Apple relationship and that kind of thing. Um, and that surprised everyone. It was, they were expecting kind of 24% year over year and they got 30%. So kind of over 6% beat there. And when uh, they asked the CFO about it, they specifically said that retail as a category was driving that strength um, and that uh, they saw 80% year-over-year growth in local businesses, um, including lots of searches. I hope you're sitting down. These are some of your favorites with local inventory availability and drum roll curbside pickup. So, so yeah, so uh, you know, people are using the Google to figure out where to get curbside pickup and they do. I do like this feature that if you need something for like a project, you can say, you know, where is a, I don't know, uh, a electric sander near me. And if you do near me, it will keys Google to show in, in stock inventory at retailers near you. Um, so that's evidently become quite popular. Yeah. Fun fact. When you do a search on a mobile device, Google just assumes you mean nearby and gives you those results. Hmm, okay. I I always do near me, so I can. I guess I can stop doing that now. I'm old school. Yeah, you just I like, like to, to really explicitly state my intent to Google, so it knows exactly what I'm doing. You you are helping to train the algorithm. They greatly appreciate that. Yeah, and then I thought this note was really interesting for listeners. I'll just kind of summarize it here. Um, you know, one of the Wall Street guys said that this was uh, you know refreshing because quote in our view retail search query share lost to Amazon has been a big pillar of the Google bear bear case. So a lot of you know with that let me translate that. So so a lot of people are worried that Google is going to eventually lose share to Amazon, which we talk about on the share all the time on the show all the time. And then it continues the emergence of true omni-channel retail amid COVID has demonstrated Google's re- relevance in an environment where multiple strong retailers are focused on digital. Um, and then they asked management and management said that they think that these behaviors are likely to stay around for a very long time. And they use the word permanent um, and they called out Bopus uh, and curbside again. And then, you know, they management highlighted how they've kind of integrated advertising and e-commerce services across search maps, YouTube, as well as the core search experience. So, you know, I thought that was interesting for Google to be talking so much about t- retail. I, I kind of, well, you and I have been talking about this forever that everyone says, okay, Google has, you know, they did that thing where they put listings into Google shopping for free. And everyone's like, is it too little, too late? Um, so it does seem like Google is is definitely refocusing on on the retail segment. And, uh, you know, I think I think them calling it out on a earnings call has kind of been a first for for a very long time that I've heard. Yeah, yeah, it it is interesting, and obviously, I I work for a big uh, evil advertising agency, um, so we see a, and talk about a lot of these trends. Um, two things to know: in, like in the pandemic, the the two biggest change to advertisers' behavior is they, we, you know, we were all terrified that everyone would advertise less, um, which you know would be bad for my my uh, career longevity. Uh, and people did temporarily get really conservative, but pretty quickly they bounced back. But what they did is they shifted a ton of their budget from traditional advertising vehicles and predominantly TV to digital. So that was like a hugely beneficial trend to Google. Um, And then the other thing they did is they shifted from all these awareness ads, what we would call top of funnel, um, to ads with a more measurable call to action, which is code for commerce, right? Like they, you know, um, they wanted to run ads that they could measure sold something instead of ads that just got impressions. And, um, so both of those trends in my mind 
were, you know, nice uh, uh, tailwinds for, for Google. Um, and I don't know if this is a commonly known fact or not, but but retail has has been the largest share of ads on Google for for some time. So um, that, you know, all of those things were favorable. Um, and I would just point out two other interesting tidbits. I, I, we've talked about this before, but I think the Google losing search to Amazon is like there's a grain of truth to it, but I think it's way overblown. Like a the the explicit data that's all over the internet is horrible, right? Like it's from thousand user surveys of where they claim they do searches, um, and it's the truth is it's impossible to know because all of those claims are are not search volume. Google's search volume vastly exceeds Amazon's. They're what they're saying is that product searches are going to Amazon, not Google. But no one can define what a product search is. Yeah. Right. And and it's the Paris Hilton problem. Yeah. Yeah. There's no taxonomy or. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, I hadn't heard of that example before, but I love it. Uh, so. So, yeah, I you know, I, I think that both both Google and Amazon are were huge beneficiaries that probably saw their search get, you know, uh, significantly accelerated. So that was interesting. And then I would just point out, like, because. They they specifically called out Bopus. Um, it is interesting. There, it, it appears that most retailers are equally convinced that the the curbside pickup phenomenon is is going to be permanent and outlive the pandemic, right? Because uh, we we've seen Target announce that they're doing a significant expansion of their curbside pickup programs, and you know the hopefully the pandemic is starting to wind down right now, and yet they're still doubling their capacity of curbside pickup locations. Um, and then Walmart made an interesting announcement. Walmart had all these robots, these really expensive robots inside of the stores to do in-store pickups. And they've said that they're actually decommissioning all of those towers uh, because customers don't want to come in the store to pick up their goods anymore. They want to do curbside pickup. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, they spent a lot of money on this. Yeah. And you maybe you we would could get a used one for the it, Jason it, and Scott show. Yeah. If I, I will try to pick one up on the on the secondhand market if I can, but uh put it in your condo in yeah, Chicago. My wife would love that. Um <laughs> it's exactly her decor, uh giant orange robot towers. Um but the Steven would love it for sure. But the uh she could say, Jason, have you seen a charger? And you could be like, Hold on, and the the tower would spit one out at her. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, well, but remember these are Walmart ones, so it would, you would ask for a charger and you'd get a banana. Um, <laughs> uh, but but obviously, uh, in all seriousness, like if if Walmart thought that the curbside pickup was a pandemic only phenomenon, they they wouldn't be decommissioning those towers. So so it's you know it remains to be seen what's really going to happen. But it seems like the retailers have a lot of um, confidence in in this being a permanent new consumer behavior. Yeah, one last thing on Google, you you jogged my memory. Um, when they talked about more activity at the bottom of the funnel, they talked about e-commerce, but then they also kind of did. I kind of I kind of caught it as throwing a little shade at Facebook. They said, "Yeah, we've seen a huge surge in app download ad buys because they're they're not uh, you know because all this traffic is inside their network. They don't have the the IDFA or the cookieless problem that that Facebook has." Yeah, yeah, I think uh, like I, I, I'm not shocked that they pointed that out, but I think that it's all it has the added advantage of being true. Like they, yeah, they yeah, probably are a beneficiary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Then the next up was Shopify. What did you see um, that tickled your fancy in there? Um, yeah, so they're continuing to kill it. Like, uh, you know, certainly uh, if you're an investor, uh, they are doing very well by you. So they had like 110% year-over-year growth. I think it was 94% uh, uh, last quarter. So that's um, accelerated growth. Um, the Like, obviously, Q1 is an interesting quarter for all these retailers because there was this, you know... Uh, economic stimulus that was in Q1 this year that was not in Q1 last year. And so that that helps everyone's comps this year and it makes everyone super gloomy about their comps, uh, either their quarter over quarter comps they're worried about next quarter and their year over year comps they're they're also worried about next quarter because they don't have the pandemic aid that they as much as they had last year. Um Shopify, of course, uh 
in addition to revenue, have has a Jim V number, and the Jim V grew even faster, so one hundred and fifteen percent. And I would just remind people that, what, like, as an investor, I love all these numbers; they're super exciting. But I see people all the time uh, use them as some evidence that the that the long tail sellers are thriving and growing on Shopify. And I would just point out that, like. The, these numbers are the amalgamation of likely hundreds of thousands of sellers, many of which have like less than 12 months of more, you know, of, of life and there's huge churn. And so the, these growth numbers are more indicative of Shopify tw- signing up twice as many businesses as they had last year than they are that the businesses that are on Shopify are doing twice as well. Um, because like, frankly, there's a lot of evidence that, that, uh, the the majority of revenue growth in in retail is disproportionately going to these large players at the top of the ecosystem and not all these long tail players that you know tend to live on the shopify ecosystem yeah i agree um so that being said uh you know everyone like it's it's interesting to see how everyone spins their q2 right um so you're you're starting to lap the pandemic, uh, and I I I, th- I would characterize the the Q2 comments from from Shopify as being kind of conservative, right? Like they they painted a picture about facing some significant headwinds, and I think they they told investors that they plan to significantly ramp up investment spending. Um, so you know that that uh, may well be smart, but it you know sometimes investors don't like to hear that they'll be pouring all the profits back into the company. Um, and they did, uh, my favorite topic of all, like they, you know, they did talk about, uh, how successful their, their shop app has been the, the mobile app. And I think they disclosed that the they, marketplace, exactly the, the marketplace that put Amazon out of business, I think is what I read yep. on Twitter. Um, the, by the shopperazzi, I like to call them the Shopify zealots. Uh, they, they disclosed that the mobile app has 24, I think 24 million active monthly users. Am I remembering that number right, Scott? Or does yeah. that, yeah. MAUs as we say in the biz. Exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a, a meaningful, uh, amount of users. Now what they don't disclose is any hint of revenue or GMV that goes through that app. Um, you know, or what. Or, or, you know, how, how people are using that app. So I, you know, I, like I, I, it's a, it's predominantly a shipping tracking app. And so I like the, the positioning it as a shop app is, is in my mind, pretty thin at this point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd um, be shocked if other... 500,000 people have ever bought something from the shop app. So the fact that they have 24 million active users doesn't, doesn't mean a lot to me. It doesn't mean they're taking any share from Amazon. I like their payment system because they've gotten it now to be more like Square, where if you once you enter your email, it kind of like sends you a code and then fills everything out. I, I like that because I can never remember my password on any of this stuff. So yeah, yeah, authentication like via email um, in general is a uh, a rapidly growing uh, UX trend, and and it, it mostly is way more secure because it encourages you not to to have an easy to remember password that can easily be hacked. Um, and some payment providers even give you the option to not, to literally not have a password. Um, so I, I agree. I like that user experience. I think shop pay is an excellent product and, you know, I didn't see any mention of it really in the, in their earnings report, but last quarter was the first quarter that, that Shopify made shop pay available to people outside of the Shopify ecosystem because they, you can now uh, except shop pay on uh, uh, Facebook checkout, which is also used by Instagram. So, um, yeah, where where it shows up is um, Shopify is interesting. It has it's kind of like something like forty percent of their revenues are kind of traditional software as a service subscription revenues, um, and then sixty percent is effectively a take rate on that GMV, almost like a marketplace where they get um, sub sub. sub subsidies subsidies yeah subsidies from the payment providers their own payment system their loaning program um they get kickbacks from some of the shipping providers and that's kind of where that take rate comes from and that take rate increased pretty materially um from 2.38 to 2.65 um and they largely 
called out the adoption of shop pay amongst that pool of GMB as, as a driver, um, as well as some of the other, other like, like the, uh, what's it called? The little loan program, where if you need some, you know, like a little spot loan to buy some inventory, um, I always think Shopify of it as, finance, is it called or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. They all have PayPal. Every, everyone has one now. Yeah. Um, that saw that grew very dramatically to kind of like a $300 million kind of a quarter loaning base up pretty substantially from. So that was also part of the take rate move. So that's, that's where you can kind of dig in and find where that's going on in the earnings. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, uh, at the risk of turning this into a two hour show, I would just say like the digital wallet space in the U S is super interesting to watch the, uh, Pre-pandemic, 23% of, of e-commerce used a digital wallet in the U.S. As a result of the pandemic, 23% went to 30, which is a, a pretty decent acceleration. But to put that in perspective, the worldwide average for e-commerce is 44%, and China, over 75% use a digital wallet. And you look at a bunch of the shopping experiences that work in China, where 75% of the people are paying with a digital wallet— that haven't worked very well in the U.S. when we only had 23% using a digital wallet, you go, man, if digital wallets catch on in the U.S. and continue to grow like this, that's going to open the door to a lot of new commerce experiences like social commerce. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Cool. And then um, did you see that they're going to do some more uh, investing in the fulfillment? I did. I did. Uh, like there continues to be some controversy on on uh, uh, Twitter about um, how bullish uh, some of the the industry experts are on that. But um, it to me, it, it makes total sense. Like I, I, I actually think that that's a smart play for Shopify. And in, in general, they like they've pivoted. They used to mainly be in the business of renting servers to people um, to host stores um, and increasingly, as you've already pointed out, like their, their business model is to make money on services that they provide to small businesses. Right. And and the logistics is one of the most lucrative potential businesses. Um, you know, if I were a third party carrier, I would not be in love with that trend. Yeah. Well, cool. Then uh, next up, we had eBay and um this one was kind of the most interesting. So, so far, both Google and Shopify were kind of what I would call kind of beat and raise. So, you know, already in an elevated environment with the pandemic, they exceeded already high expectations and then they kind of raised going into the next quarter. Um, and then eBay came out and they were definitely a beat on Q1. But then um, as they started talking about Q2, people kind of freaked out a little bit. So, so on the Q1 side, the GMV, uh, which is the transactional volume going through the marketplace, exceeded the street forecast by 4% and therefore revenue beat by 2%. Um, and it was actually their, their Q1 GMV was higher than their Q4 GMV, which, you know, is pretty interesting feat because, um, you know, most times you, you surge up into Q4, you come down, and then by the time you get to Q3, it's kind of level with Q4, and then your next Q4 is a step up. So if you look at eBay over time, they've got this stair step, um, and then they had this really interesting inflection point. And, you know, I think that's largely driven by this, the, what everyone's calling the STEMI dollars. So uh, I think they were a beneficial of, of beneficiary of that. People buying, I don't know, maybe a hard to, hard to find collectible they've had their eye on or something. Um, but then when they projected GMV, they, they put a pretty material decline in there for Q2. And that really kind of freaked people out that, you know, the, the they're not going to be able to sustain growth. So, you know, I don't know if it's conservatism or, you know, here we are. Um, the other interesting thing is, you know, these guys have about a month of the current quarter to kind of factor into their guidance for that quarter. And it just felt like eBay, I think the read through was eBay was seeing something there in April that made them you know, pretty conservative. And, but it's interesting because, and, in, you know, so far we haven't talked about Amazon, but of the other companies that reported, we didn't really get much other than like that Facebook warning that, you know, kind of, Hey, you know, we may see some softness from this IDFA thing. So that was the scoop on eBay. I have um, a, uh, another good. Oh, I was going to say, I have a hypothesis there that I'd be curious if, uh, what your perspective is on. Um, so Q2 of this year, they'll be comping against Q2 of last year. Um, Q2 of last year was the, the, the thrust of the pandemic and that, that initial tranche of people that suddenly were afraid to go to stores and were buying everything online. And if you, you think back to that time, 
you know, Amazon had a service level glitch there, right? Like they they conservatively pulled back on shipping a lot of non-essential goods to really focus on on shipping essential goods. And that had the consequence of shifting a lot of purchasers off of Amazon to alternative e-commerce sites for the first time in a long time. And so I think like Target, Walmart, and eBay were all beneficiaries of that trend. And my hypothesis is that Walmart and Target feel like they they had an opportunity to permanently capture some of those customers, but that eBay may feel like, hey, people came and bought stuff from us when when Amazon was on, you know, two week delivery windows. But when they go back to one day delivery windows, we're not going to get the we're not going to be able to keep those customers. Hmm. I think I, I like your theory. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. Yeah, and then also, uh, spoiler alert for our Amazon section, but they're going to be doing a June um, Prime Day. So that is going to create a headwind for everyone because, you know, they're going to suck some of the oxygen out of the room in Q2, whereas last year it was in Q4. Or wait, was it was October or September? It was September, right? Uh, no, it was October. October. Yeah. Okay. So last year it was Q4. Well, maybe we should pivot to Amazon. That's a great idea, Jason. Let's talk about Amazon. So uh, Amazon came in with net sales up 44% to $108.5 billion with a B in the first quarter. So that is very strong. On the US side, they were up 39.5. Digital uh, physical stores were down 16%. Again, I think that's a little bit of a kind of a head fake because uh, you know that's going to largely be grocery, which is moving to delivery and curbside, but that puts it over outside of physical stores and into the digital side of things. So a little bit of a apples and oranges thing there or attribution, I guess I should say. Um, Some of the metrics, uh, oh, I should say international was up 60% year over year. So that was pretty impressive. So international is seeing a really nice acceleration. You and I were talking before the show in the green room and, you know, you pointed out they've opened up some new markets, um, which I agree but international's kind of been lagging the U.S. for a while, and now it's really picking up. I wonder if they're starting to see some of the benefit of, you know, like I, uh, all my friends in the U.K. say things are in pretty good shape there. The vaccination rates are up and that kind of thing. Um, so I wonder if they're starting to feel some benefit from that on the international side. That that was interesting. Uh, on the third party side, a couple of the metrics I look at is the share of third party is is holding steady at 55%. Um, and then they do uh, talk about a couple other metrics that you can kind of read through here. Uh, third-party seller services were up 64%. That's largely uh, FBA and some of the things they charge for some small subscriptions for stores. Then they have another category, which is subscription services. That's where Prime lives. Uh, and that was up 36%. And as a reminder, um, they did reiterate in the in the release, uh, the Bezos letter, 200 million assertion on Prime subscribers. So interesting to see that kind of re- reiterated in the press release. And then, um, you know, I hope you're sitting down, but because... Yeah, Scott, uh, before you go any further, like, it's impressive that they sold all that stuff, but it's a shame they they don't make any money on that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know you and I have talked a lot about how Amazon is never profitable. Um, Well, they did make a little profit. They eked out a profit this quarter. Uh, Net income was $26.9 billion. And what's a fun fact with that is if you take the profit from Q1 2021 of 26.9 billion, that's more than Amazon's profits from the three uh, past years, 2017, uh, 18, and 19. If you add up all the net income from those three, it was 24.7, a paltry 24.7 billion. And so just in this first quarter, um, this is an interesting idea. It kind of gives you an idea of the scale that Amazon is, is kind of growing this thing. Um, they did 26.9 billion. So they did more in Q1 than the previous three years in, in profits. So you and I get this whole thing where Amazon wouldn't be profitable if it wasn't for AWS. Well, yes, AWS is a pretty good, you know, kind of um, portion of those profits, but it's not 100%. And international is now profitable. The marketplace is profitable. The retail is profitable. So uh, Amazon is turning into a cash flow generating just a, a machine. Uh, and Wall Street loves this. So, so their stock was up uh, pretty materially, I would say, uh, last I looked, kind of. 10 to 12 points 
Um, so that was interesting. And that profit uh, uh, was kind of a beat as well. So then um, as they gave Q2 guidance, um, they they actually were kind of pretty bullish. So they said that they expect pretty strong continued e-commerce growth. Um, and then, of course, they're going to have a prime day, um, which is about a $10 billion benefit shifting there. So this was a uh, kind of a, a you know, not only a beat for Q1, but a little bit of a raise into Q2. So everyone was pleasantly surprised by that. So a little bit different than the eBay story, uh, which kind of ties into what you were saying. I know your favorite as chief digital retail curbside uh, grocery officer there at an ad agency. I know you like to track ads. How did that do? Yeah. Uh, so you, you know, you mentioned AWS and AWS is a very good business that any of us would like to have. But my hypothesis is it's, it's potentially the third best business at Amazon. <laughs> um, so, so I actually think that, that Amazon may have made more money in the last 12 months selling ads than they did on AWS. Um, and the reason for that is if, uh, if you can sell ads, it, those ads are almost pure profit, right? So uh, for the last quarter, their, their other revenue, which is mostly the, the ads they sell to, to brands and merchants, um, was up 73%. Um, so that's a great rate of growth. Um, we won't even talk about run rate because the ad business is kind of seasonal. But if we just look at the trailing 12 months, um, other revenue was twenty four point four seven billion dollars. So, so they sold twenty four billion dollars of ads in the last twelve months, um, and their only cost to do that is a little bit of infrastructure costs and some salespeople, right? So that's almost pure profit. So that you know that may have spun off twenty three billion dollars in profit. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. It's a it's a in good Q one. Uh, well, no, that would have been in 12 months. So, uh, but still like compared to their, you know, that's a, uh, likely more revenue, uh, more earnings than they get out of AWS, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And then just backtracking for one second, like that they don't report separate financials for third party sales versus first party sales. Like they, they give us some seller data, but, uh, just as a reminder in third-party sales, it would almost be impossible not to be profitable, right? Like, because they don't really have any carrying costs. Um, they they sell a bunch of services to those sellers, and then they take a commission when that seller sells to a, a buyer. Um, and the fact that that's the majority of the retail sales, like, it's almost inconceivable that, that the, the 3P business at Amazon isn't more profitable than, than uh, AWS also. So I would just... In my mind, both of those businesses are probably at least as good as AWS, which is also excellent. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that being said, uh, AWS had another good quarter. You know, again, they're they're the dominant player in cloud services. So you know, the fact that they're still growing like this is is pretty impressive. Um, their uh, Q one year over year growth was thirty two percent. Um, so it, it is obviously decelerating a little bit. Um, but that, you know, 32% is a pretty healthy clip, uh, that, um, un unlike the, the sales business, like it is, I think fair to look at run rate for AWS because, you know, people don't tend to turn off their servers for part of the year. Um, so that, that they're basically at a $54 billion annual run rate on, uh, AWS, um, which is a, 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 you know, nice, healthy revenue rate to, we, we don't really have a way to compare apples to apples. And as you were kind of educating me offline, um, there, there's definitely some fuzziness, uh, particularly in Microsoft's numbers because they, they have a lot of their own cloud services that they, you know, potentially are including in the Azure number. Um, but, some kind of uh, back of napkin estimates I've seen for the size of Azure that may or may not be inflated have Azure at around $30 billion against a Amazon's $54 billion. Um, and Google Cloud Platform, you know, is uh, probably in the nature of like $16 billion. So um, both Azure and Google say their businesses are growing at just under 50%. So they're growing faster than AWS, but off of a much smaller base. 
Got it. Okay. Any other tidbits we want to talk about here? Um, this was an interesting one where um, they they said in the press release they said, and I'll I'll say this, I'll quote this to make sure I don't mess it up. In the U.S., same day delivery in as fast as five hours is free on orders over thirty five dollars for over three million items in select cities. So five hours. So, you know, we've, I've talked a lot about same day prime is going to be the standard. Um, we talked in previous episodes that GoPuff is really, um, yeah, I saw another article that, that they, they're doubling, but they're getting a lot more competition. So, you know, I think that Amazon is going to really start to turn up the, the heat on GoPuff by getting down to, you know, hours, if not minutes of delivery for, for those kind of essential items that people want. Um, so snacks and ice cream and, you know, it starts to hit some of the grocery items as well. Uh, and then it continues. This is an addition to free same day delivery on millions of items in thousands of cities and towns across 47 major U S metro areas, plus over 10 million items available for free one day delivery coast to coast. So, you know, so it's really interesting. So there's these concentric circles where the little, the smallest circle is uh, 3 million items in select cities. So that's probably like five or 10 is kind of how I read that. Then you come out and then you get same day delivery on millions of items in thousands of cities um, and uh, towns across 47 metros. So 47 metros, um, 3 million. And then the biggest ring is 10 million items for free one day delivery coast to coast. So pretty Pretty interesting that they're continuing to just grind away at getting things to you faster with a bigger selection closer and closer and closer to you. Yeah, I actually think I think it's all super impressive. Uh, I think you might even be conflating two things that are both like uh, expansions of their very fast delivery. Um, I, I interpreted that announcement slightly different than you. Like you, you, uh, it sounds like we're thinking that that's referencing uh, Amazon's comp. Uh, competing with GoPuff and I would argue also like DoorDash for delivering like um, top off groceries, right? So stuff that you you might have picked up at a bodega in the pre-pandemic world, you're now getting delivered to your house. And this this uh, digitally native company GoPuff that bought uh, Bevmo last year, like they're 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 uh, growing quite well, providing that that kind of service. And we've we now have some evidence that Amazon is building out fulfillment centers to compete with them. So um, this uh, publication called Hungry actually like like found video of the the um, uh, contractors that are building these new fulfillment centers, and they're targeting delivering like you know a small assortment of groceries in under two hours. And there there's one that's under construction here in Chicago. So that, I think that's all true. I don't think that's what they're talking about here. What what I think they're talking about here is delivering the most popular items from the the fulfillment centers with a faster service level. And um, part of the reason I think that is they they talk, they made this announcement today and I got a new experience on Amazon today. So I live in Chicago. We tend to be one of the first markets to get a lot of Amazon services. But I put some stuff in my cart and it had a new message that I hadn't seen before, which is... Uh, you know, order this in the next X hours and get it delivered by 8 a.m. tomorrow um, if you uh, spend a minimum of $35. And so the the fact that, that those offers had this $35 threshold and Amazon specifically referenced the $35 uh, threshold in their, in their um, comments in their earnings call make me think that that's what they're talking about. So I don't think it's the the grocery items or the GoPuff competitors that they're talking about here. Um, I think it's popular items from Amazon that a week ago they would have said, order it in the next four hours and get it tomorrow, which tomorrow at my house usually meant they delivered it at like 8 p.m. at night. Um, and now they're promising it like at 8 a.m. Very interesting. Yeah. Let us know how that goes. Yeah. I, I in fact, ordered a few things. So I'll be curious to see if I get that 8 a.m. delivery tomorrow. Cool. Any other Amazon highlights before we go to the summary? Uh, you, you did allude to they they confirmed not in the the earnings announcement, but in their investor call, uh, they did uh, confirm that they were moving Prime Day to June. And as you you referenced last year as an anomaly, it was in October because of the pandemic. Uh, but ordinarily, Prime Day is in July, so. 
the way to think of this is they are pulling Prime Day in earlier than they typically did, um, which is interesting. Uh, they said that it's because they uh, they foresee some logistic challenges in July and the 4th of July puts a, a wrench in things and that they think June is just a better a better fit for Prime Day. So so likely uh, we still don't know the exact date, but expect to see Prime Day in June this year. I have a, a a partial hypothesis that another reason that they would move Prime Day to be a little earlier in the year is they they did have Prime Day last last year in October and it was very successful. And I'll be shocked if Amazon doesn't invent some new sales event in October of this year. Um, so if that's true, that would be another reason to space out those sales events more by making uh, Prime Day earlier in the year. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Uh, so to summarize, if we kind of start um, and and build up, we have, uh, so imagine in your head a, a chart where we have eBay at 24% growth, um, Amazon North America at 39, uh, Amazon International at 50, and then uh, at Walmart e-commerce, uh, they haven't reported yet, but just as a baseline, they're at kind of 69. And I would be shocked if they don't do as good, if not better in Q1. Um, and then Shopify at uh, 114%. So that's how it kind of stacked up. Um, and I forget, Jason, when you did that initial read, I know they don't do the commerce one yet, but they have that other commerce or whatever they call it. How does, where do they kind of fall into that stack? Uh, do you remember? Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a mess. It's a lower number. Um, so, so like the U S department of commerce, which I, I assume is what you're asking about, like they're, they're tracking around 25%, um, which sounds way, way lower than these numbers. Um, the, that non-store sales number is higher. So that's like in the thirties. Um, Adobe released some data that they, uh, said Q1 was like 35%. Um, and, um, what used to be internet retailer magazine now, I think it's called digital 360. Uh, they came out and said that they saw e-commerce at like 45% growth. So, so there's numbers all over the place right now. And then they'll update that one though in in like the next thirty days, right? So we'll get a better picture. Yeah, yeah. So the the ecom data comes out quarterly, um, and so I think that's going to be mid May. I'll have the intern um, uh, check on that while we're we're uh, uh, chatting, but but I, I think that is right. Okay, cool. Any other interesting Amazon tidbits you saw? Uh, I think that was everything that, that jumped out at me. There is a little bit of uh, Amazon news outside of the earnings. Do we want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, jump into that. Cool. Uh, before we do, I will just confirm uh, that the e-com quarterly data from the U.S. Department of Commerce will be May 18th, so, so uh, middle of next month. Um, so other Amazon stuff that was interesting uh, to me, a, a couple of things uh, – a lot of activity in the UK. So um, Amazon has opened uh, their first Amazon Go stores in in London. So they, for the first time, have just walkout technology in London. Um, unless I'm misreading something, it's interesting because the it sounds like the stores there look exactly like the stores here, but they're branded Amazon Fresh in the UK, which is interesting because... In the U.S., those stores are called Amazon Go stores, and Amazon has an entirely different retail concept that is so far not just walkout technology. That's a grocery store that's called Amazon Fresh here. So it's interesting that there they chose the Amazon Fresh name and the just walkout technology. Um, And related to that, we also got news uh, from Bloomberg, I think, that uh, from Matt Day, uh, he he broke a story that it looks like there is a Amazon Fresh store under construction in like Connecticut, um, and he got copies of the plans, and it very clearly shows the the like turnstiles and mobile scanning units and stuff of an Amazon Go store. So, and I think Amazon even confirmed it was true uh, that it appears they're going to be opening their first full size grocery store. Um, that, uh, that has just walkout technology. 
And in some small way, we were part of that news because you and I sort of broke the news that some of the grocery stores that were not just walkout technology had all the cameras from just walkout technology. And and you'll remember, we theorized that they might be using those cameras to collect data for a, a future just walk out grocery store. Um, and Amazon confirmed that that was true as well. So we were right. Wow. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that was interesting to me. All of this just walk out stuff. The the more fun, wacky news from London was that Amazon opened another new retail concept in London. Um, and this is, I think, a much anticipated one that we all saw coming a mile away. Um, Amazon has opened a hair salon. Yeah, I, I found this one as a services person. Uh, I found this one interesting and also scary at the same time. Um, and then as I dug in, it seemed like a gimmick, like someone else is actually running the salon and it just seemed like a gimmick to sell more echoes, I guess, because like the article t- kept talking about how they'd be highlighting, uh, you know, kind of in-home automation kind of stuff. Do, do you think there's something or, or in some beauty products too? Yeah. So I think two things are going on who knows. Right. So I, I joke, I certainly didn't see this coming, but so, yeah, so they, they've opened their own hair salon. They've hired a established, uh, well-known hairdresser in London um, to be responsible for the actual hairstyling. Um, and they've invented a lot of new in-store or in-salon, I guess you would say, technologies for this store. Um, so they're, they're using augmented reality to show you what your haircut's going to look like before you get your haircut, um, which is a, a, a new technology we haven't seen before. They're uh, using uh, digital signs with gesture recognition to give you product information about the the professional salon hair care product. So, so imagine they have a shelf of shampoos. You point at one of the shampoos, and a screen above the shampoo knows which shampoo you pointed at, and and gives you content about that particular shampoo. And then you can order that shampoo by scanning a QR code. Um, so all three of those those technologies would potentially have broad application in a bunch of retail categories. And, you know, as someone that talks a lot about digital technologies moving to store, uh, one hypothesis I have is that Amazon decided that a beauty salon would be a good uh, sort of laboratory slash proof point for testing some of these new technologies that they're rolling out. Right. And so I, I think one of the reasons they may have opened this store is to give them uh, a customer-facing way to test some of these technologies, and if they work well, you you would expect to see them in Amazon four-star stores and bookstores, and and you know at some point selling them to other retailers. Uh, but the other thing that Amazon has leaned pretty heavily into is uh, broader product categories and B two B. And so one one decent size category is the B to B beauty category, right? And so these are products that are not sold at Walmart, but are sold by professional hairstylists to their customers. Um, and Amazon has has been trying to recruit more sellers to sell those products. And in the same way, you need a liquor license to um, uh, legally sell beer. Um, you. Uh, most of these B2B products contractually, you have to be a salon to buy and sell. And so um, I have a hypothesis that they may literally have opened a salon so that they could go to more vendors and get those vendors to give them access to their, their B2B uh, beauty products. Hmm. Yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot of weird, a lot of things require stores these days. <laughs> so that would check the box. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like it's a little known fact, but like there are, there's a fulfillment center in every state that you can walk up to and buy alcohol, right? Because the, the, like you can't get a delivery liquor license only. <laughs> um, and so, so like there's a door that's not advertised in one of these fulfillment centers to meet the requirements for that liquor license. Right. And there, there's no law about these beauty product distribution, but as a, it's a contractual term and, and, you know, it's just, it's conceivable to me that Amazon is doing this as both a learning opportunity and uh, a, a way to get access to some of those products. So it'll be interesting to see if they do more with that. Um, 
A couple other little interesting tidbits. A uh, bunch of news today. Uh, we try not to get too much into the political stuff, but uh, Amazon announced a, a, a significant wage increase for 500,000 of their employers. So they said that, that would, they'd be investing over a billion dollars a year and giving 500,000 workers a raise of between 50 cents and $3 an hour. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Like Amazon has, you know, use the fact that they were one of the first retailers to embrace the $15 minimum hour, uh, thing as a, as a kind of foil against some of the, the, the negative press they get. Uh, I personally feel like, uh, the labor market's just getting really tight and it's getting hard to hire. Um, and, and Amazon is raising wages because they, they're continuing to grow like a weed and need to hire a bunch of people. And they're finding that they just have to pay more to get the people they want. Yeah, you might as well get political credit for it while you do it. Yeah, it's like you do it a month earlier and you get the that that for first mover PR. And then when Target matches it, it, it just won't look as impressive. Um, and then uh, there was a little bit of a buzz. Uh, you know, Amazon had done a bunch of seller unfriendly things like they actually started masking. If you're a third party seller on Amazon and you you don't fulfill your own goods, so you use fulfillment by Amazon. Um Amazon's no longer telling you the name or address of the customer that bought your goods, um, which a lot of people, uh, you know, were uh, found found to be uh, kind of offensive. Um, and so then uh, a couple weeks ago, they launched a new program that actually gave brands on Amazon better access to Amazon customers. They actually launched a campaign where you could pay Amazon to email um, marketing material to your customers, uh, your fans on the Amazon platform. And so there, there was a lot of um, uh, talk about this being, you know, uh, a potential thawing of the ice in, in all these, you know, things Amazon does to, to kind of keep the customers and sellers separate. Um, I think it got a little overhyped because to be honest, like the conditions for that program are pretty restrictive. So I don't think it's going to be a huge amount of people that can take advantage. A, you have to be a brand that's registered in the Amazon brand registry. So you can't just be a third party seller, you know, that's, that's, you, you're, you can't be like a wholesaler of Chinese goods or something like that. Um, but then uh, you can only email to people that have uh, uh, designated themselves fans of your brand page. So again, you have to be paying for and have a separate brand page and the only people you get access to are the people that clicked the like button on your brand, which, you know, is probably not a lot of people on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is kind of, you know, that that plus uh, the next one that I'll go over where I view them as signals as this kind of like nibbling away at Shopify thing that we've been talking away about. Um, so the one I wanted to talk about is they made an update to their fulfillment fees and one of the things that's interesting is they've offered what they call multi-channel fulfillment. So FBA was born to essentially give you the choice as a marketplace seller to either fulfill them yourself or have them prime eligible uh, through FBA. Then they've introduced seller fulfilled prime and all this other stuff. Um, but the intent is that all those programs are for things to ship things that were sold on Amazon through the, the third party marketplace. Then I think like five, maybe seven years ago, they introduced kind of multi-channel fulfillment where you could run your whole store, your whole online store. You could have a Shopify store, for example, and then route those orders to FBA. What's nice about that is you didn't have to split your inventory. So a lot of a lot of people that don't just sell on Amazon, they would have to send a big pool of inventory to FBA. Then they'd have a separate pool of inventory somewhere else. And then Murphy's Law always kicks in and you would send uh, not enough to FBA or too much. And then you know, you'd know you have to constantly be load balancing your inventory between the two, two warehouses. So they introduced this kind of multi-channel fulfillment where you could send everything to FBA and then you could fill your, fill your eBay orders, your store orders, and your Amazon orders through one channel. Then um, a couple of years ago, so then that was like seven years ago, let's say. And then a couple of years ago, they started to kind of like really limit people's availability to this program. I think they started to see that FBA was becoming so full and they just really wanted it to be so for, for you know, single channel, the Amazon channel fulfillment. Um, and then now they announced that they are going to add an option to block orders from being shipped by Amazon Logistics uh, for a 5% surcharge. 
Because sales channels like eBay and Walmart prohibit the use of Amazon logistics, you will be able to block this shipping method at the account level within your FBA settings. So this is interesting. It, it, to me, it signals that they're refocusing on this as an option. You, you know, eBay and Walmart uh, explicitly disallow this. Um, and what happens there is they don't like it when you buy from eBay and Walmart and it shows up in the Amazon box. <laughs> it confuses the consumer. Uh, I've seen this happen a lot, but also, you know, um, you know, it, it's it's really confusing. I remember a story where this is kind of urban legend. The eBay CEO at the time, whose name I won't say, uh, went went to the mailroom and he saw you know all these Amazon boxes. And um, as he dug into it, everyone was ordering off eBay, but everything was showing up in Amazon boxes. <laughs> so, so I think they they then very quickly kind of came up with a policy that that was bad and uh, that they would not allow that anymore. So. What's interesting here is, so then if you're not going to fill to eBay and Walmart, why do this? Well, the answer is they want to capture some of those web store fulfillment. Um, and, you know, we had Fazel um, talk about this on Twitter, where he kind of viewed Shopify's you know, weak underbelly as fulfillment. So this is another one of these little kind of things. And, and maybe my radar is just kind of up too high on this and I'm over reading into it. But, you know, the, the emailing to brands, they would have never done that. Two years ago, or you know, emailing, you know, allowing you to email to your to the customers that you that you acquired on Amazon or that interacted with you on Amazon. Um, all right, let me see, let me reset. Allowing you to remarket to the Amazon-owned customers that you're borrowing or leasing or whatever. Um, that's kind of a new bridge they're going over. And then this one is interesting. So I, I thought those were two interesting tidbits in this kind of larger war between eBay and Shopify or Amazon and Shopify. Yeah. 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 I, I just want to take half a step back because I feel like this is potentially hard to follow. Right. But um, essentially Possibly. you're saying, so let's pick a brand and they, they're probably not even using this programs, but just for simplicity, I'm anchor and I make batteries um, instead of like having some batteries in my own warehouse that I can ship. If you order my products from Walmart or from anchor.com, and having some of my batteries in Amazon's fulfillment centers that, you know, Amazon will ship if you order it from Amazon. I send all my batteries to Amazon. And then if I sell one on my website, I tell Amazon to ship one. And if I sell one through Walmart, I tell Amazon to ship one. Um, and Walmart didn't like that because those batteries were showing up in a Amazon box. And so Walmart and eBay and I imagine others have said, hey, you're not allowed to use uh, Amazon to deliver our uh, packages that you sell on our on our platform, right? That that's the gist of it. Yep. Um, so one wrinkle, the way I interpreted this, uh, that I'm not uh, maybe is different. Uh, so this option is is not to say, hey, we won't fulfill your Walmart orders if you check this box. I think the option is we'll still fulfill your Amazon your Walmart orders but we'll use UPS instead of Amazon logistics. So I think Amazon logistics is actually the Amazon flex and the Amazon W2 employees that deliver stuff. You're right. Yeah, you got it. And then, um, yeah. And then uh, they do offer a reboxing. So maybe that solves the boxing problem. Um, and then the reason uh, Walmart and uh, eBay don't like the Amazon logistics, the, the truck is there's no tracking number um, that that's easily accessible. So yet, um, uh, uh, also you know we we saw um, in the UK they announced what they called door to door Amazon logistics, where you know they used an example where a retailer on a high street could ship a product to a consumer um, through the Amazon logistics, which is to me is effectively competing with FedEx and UPS. Um, and uh, Colin Sebastian had some really good reporting on that that I thought was interesting. Uh, I didn't put that in our show notes, but yeah. um, that was another thing that just jogged my memory there. So all these things are getting closer and closer to to Amazon competing yeah. with with the the carriers. Yeah, and I think for sure your hypothesis that hey Amazon would only be rolling out these kind of policies if they were planning to lean into these these delivery outside of Amazon um, services more, right? Um, so that makes perfect sense. One other thing I'm not sure if you caught in the the call after their announcement with the CFO, another um, service that the CFO announced that I was surprised about because I've had this service for a year in Chicago, but I, apparently it's not it wasn't national. 
Um, he he announced that they were providing better granularity into shipping tracking um, from Amazon Logistics. So the example he used was uh, like you you'll get proactive notifications when your package is about to be delivered, and you'll get something that says like, "Hey, your Amazon driver is eight stops away," and that you can. You can track him on a map just like you would track uh, DoorDash delivering a restaurant meal to you. Um, and the reason that surprised me is I've literally been able to do that for a year. When Amazon's delivering something, I, I get a notification and I can see the guy on a map. Yeah. So that those kinds of services you could imagine like could address some of the the objections that that other sellers would have about trackability because that's way better tracking than you get from UPS or FedEx. Yeah, you just don't have that, you know, you can take a FedEx or UPS tracking number and splat it into anywhere and there's kind of like you know, it's very easy for any consumer to track. It's not Amazon's not quite there yet. Sure. Uh, well, Scott, it's going to surprise no one, but we've taken this uh, short uh, uh, earnings call podcast and turned it into a full hour of our listeners' time. Well, we give the people what they pay for. Exactly. Uh, more than what they pay for, for sure. Um, but one way they could pay us for it is they could jump on the iTunes, the new improved podcast experience on iTunes, and finally give us that five-star review. Um, and we, we sure would appreciate that. And as always, if you had any questions or comments or we confused the bejesus out of you, uh, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, and we'd love to discuss it further. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this earnings recap. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 